You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Um, okay, I, uh, my sensitive topic is actually the untimely death of Don uh, and, uh, and the impact it had on, on those of us very close to him. Um, and because he was very young, he was only 50 years old. Um, and it was a, I think, um, you know, obviously the tragic loss to his family and kids is, you know, our loss is trivial compared to that in, in a weird way. Um, so I don't want to, but, um, it was a very weird sort of journey because, it, you know, he was diagnosed with, uh, stage four pancreatic cancer. He then got a relief because they said, oh, no, that was a misdiagnosis. It's only pancreatitis. And then he had the real diagnosis again reconfirmed. And that's all within like from Memorial Day to, you know, the beginning of the summer kind of period of time. And then, you know, he goes into experimental treatment. Um, He still is coming around in the fall, um, but he passes away in the fall six roughly six months from diagnosis to his death. So it was very fast kind of thing too, not drawn out, not years of battle and, and all of that. And, and also again, you know, uh, you know, while he was extremely weakened, uh, you know, he still found time to, for many, many times into that fall still to show up to the seminar and discuss ideas and, you know, these kind of things. And so his example of, of uh, the life of the mind and the way that he pursued it was something. Um, and, and I think different people react to tragedies of, of losing someone differently. And, uh, you know, how did, how, 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 did you process that? You're a young person. Your mentor is, um, you know, unexpectedly passes away, and you have to then process that and think about how to move forward and what you do with that. I mean, something that's my, my, my first, first loss as an adult, right? Which is also the kind of thing. But so, like, you talk about that 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 trajectory it'll it, it, it in some sense it immediately had a the diagnosis had a change that's sort yeah. of an effect you know on me uh and so i am i just finished drafting my dissertation proposal and and he was he was insistent that it be a book and so it was a proposal for a book essentially um and so i just finished drafting my dissertation proposal. i had sent it to him we were scheduled to meet to discuss the proposal. Um, and we have, the, we have the meeting, we discuss the proposal, and then he says, well, you know, so I have some, some, some bad news. Um, and he tells me about the diagnosis. This is sort of the, the initial thing, like, and the prognosis is really bad, and he sort of lays this out. Uh, and so I'm gonna me- immediately struck by two things. 
one, why in the world are we spending all this time talking about this stupid book proposal? It's, you know, whatever. Yeah. When this is like what you're dealing with, right? But that was important to him and critical to him. And he did it, but he got it out. Though he did it first. Yeah. Right. Um, and so that was a, that was already, that sort of had an impression on me. Um, and the second sort of thing was, I, you know, it was just in many ways, it's overwhelming. Like you saw, how do I, how do I deal with this? And I think I made, I came out of there, you know, sort of, we had the, the, you know, heard about the potential reprieve and then no, it really is this. And I ended up making a couple of decisions. Uh, one, I'd, I'd, I had a offer for, I was sort of going in my dissertation. I had an offer for a dissertation fellowship on the table um, and I turned it down. And I had a job offer from the consulting firm that I'd worked with on the table and I took it. And my thinking there was, I don't, like, I, you know, I, I had not yet had an opportunity to write with Don. We talked about writing together and what have you, but we just hadn't done it. We just hadn't had time to do it. Um, and he had said very clearly that he wanted to continue to work um, throughout as long as he right. uh, And so the first, and so I was like, well, I'm not going to finish my, and I'm not going to finish my dissertation. Um, and so it would have been, I couldn't accept the dissertation. I couldn't clear conscience, accept the dissertation fellowship, knowing that I had really no intent to work on my dissertation during that that year, hopefully, and I was hoping it was a year. Um, and so, I t and, and the place where I was working said they'd give me the space to do research. Uh, and so, so I took that job and, and we spent um, that summer talking about a couple of papers that we were working on together. One was the Dewey one that, that you he and I co-authored and, and one was, um, a, you know, a paper on 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 Gautama that that, yeah. that he and I that, that that he and I wrote, um, and so we spent the whole time like we spent the time talking about that, and that he, you know, and you know as he got sicker, he would, you know, his wife Mary was like, you know, had some again tremendous opportunity in some sense, although really sad, it was like. You know, he has his chemos, they're really hard on him, but one thing that's, that's, that seems to be good for him is to be distracted by talking about ideas. And so I would, so, you know, took him to chemo yeah. and talked economics on the way to chemo. And then, you know, even on the way back as he was tired, sort of he would still want to talk economics. And so we did that. That my last in-person meeting with him was him, was about, uh, the the final paper that we wrote together, where he was like, I, 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 I'm, I'll I'll finish the conclusion and and send it to you. Yeah. Um, and we would so we so we talked about where the paper was and what the draft, the, the parts of the draft that I'd given him, and he and he he finished the conclusion, didn't send it to me, and then had a stroke. Yeah. Um, and so. Mary, like I ended up getting the paper because Mary said, I know he was working on this, you know, go on his computer and see if you can find it. Um, but that was sort of like my, you know, and so that was, you know, I remember I had to present that paper at the Southern Economic Association meetings, which, you know, he dies, right. you know, a few weeks before. 
Um, and I'm like, I'm in my room in tears before the presentation. I managed to give the presentation somehow. And then I'm in tears in my room, uh, like after the presentation. Uh, and then for months, I didn't want to work on, like, I didn't, like, getting back to my dissertation was like, or, like, I had a job that I liked. And so I was just like, well, maybe I won't do this. And the, the thing that brought me back into um, academics was really that um, you and Jack High were putting on a conference to honor Don, oh. and then Jack was following it up with a edited volume that he was going to do, and I, and I got invited to write a paper on the edited volume, and, and it was about Don, so I couldn't, you know, I obviously had to say yes to that. Um, and then I sort of got into scholarship again, and then um, you decided, you know, you stepped in and, you know, chaired the dissertation. Jack stepped in to be an, an additional member of the, the dissertation. Um, and so that's sort of what pushed me um, to finish. But I still, for a long while, um, didn't sort of live this life outside. Of, like I was doing yeah. articles and stuff like that, but I was living this life outside of um, the academic world. And in some sense, because of that decision that I made um, yeah. when he got sick. I mean, I'll, I'm going to have a conversation with Dave Perchico, um later this this semester, and uh, but I think Dave also. I mean, a lot of circumstances happened in Dave's life that that reoriented his priorities, but I think this was one of them. I mean, Dave flew out from Michigan, and we sat with Don in his bedroom, actually, um, and uh, you know, late in the, the diagnosis, not not as, as, as late as you were just talking about, but Don was pretty, he was immobile, um, you know, by this time. And, and we sat and talked and, uh, it's interesting. My memory of that conversation is that it's one of the conversations where I gladly listened a lot more than I spoke in my, in my life because I wanted to hear every word that came out of his mouth. Um, and, uh, you know, I think of Don, and again, you know, people have different impressions in these kind of difficult circumstances. But to me, he was, you know, the way he and Mary faced that, the, you know, uh, peaceful, graceful, serene in a way that was beyond my uh, imagination to be able to do. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's a, uh, it really has um, it had a major impact on me because I wanted to make sure that uh, whatever we did at Mason was something that Don would have, um, you know, said like, okay, that's a cool thing that you're doing. Yeah. And, and it's been a constant reminder of all the things that, that go on. Um, so anyway, all right. I just, I, 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 we, we shared that experience and obviously it's like being the siblings in a, in a household, you know, you all have the same parents, but your experience is different the way you're raised. Yeah. You know? And uh, so it's it's kind of fascinating to me to see how in my cohort, you know, Steve and Horowitz and Dave Perchico and Emily, 
uh, and myself all wrestled with that, you know, as opposed to other people and what we did in response to it and, and, and whatnot. Um, <clears throat> it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just, uh, it's, a, it's about commitment to teaching and, and honoring the kind of values that he put up. One of the things that I wanted to also ask you about, because you've spent a large part of your, um, you know, a chunk of your intellectual life at Mercatus. I, Tyler and I have as well. And one of the things about Mercatus is there's a continuity in the 40 years, but there's also a constant reinventing. Um, I'm trying to think of like an artist that does that as well, that reinvent themselves, you know, over time so that they can become artists for the different uh, generations or whatever, or, or athletes that reinvent themselves on teams and, and the way that they do that. And I was wondering what, you know, what do you think about all of that? And why is it that this organization has been in some sense as adaptable and as uh, flexible as it, as it has been, as opposed to having an arc in which it serves a purpose and then dies out, right? Why, yeah. how, how's it able to do this? Um, yeah. yeah, and I've thought, I've, I've thought a lot about that. Like, I think it's the, I think the secret sauce is actually the thing that hasn't changed throughout the whole time, which is um, the mission of the organization. Right, and so it's an organization that that has a mission that that's sort of driven by trying to, you know, to understand the world, understand the world of, of free and responsible individuals, and and what the um, circumstances are need, you know, are need to be that enable that world to come about, and what the consequences of that world um, are, and and so that's. That's a mission that's the even in its different identities sort of ran through the ran through the organization right and it sort of is, is and that 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 kind of um because that hasn't changed, but you know the problems of the world have changed in some instances the the personalities involved have changed um the kinds of questions that are that are interesting and in, and in, in driving us have changed um the you know the opportunities uh oh you know both um intellectual opportunities but also programmatic opportunities have changed the resources have changed but the mission stayed the same that we've we've sort of managed to both be the same organization and be um you know flexible and growing and adaptable and all these kinds of things that are that are that are super cool and so i think that that when you when you see organizations that don't, um, that, that sort of tap out, um, there's sort of one of two things that are, that are happening there. It's either that the mission itself is a limit, is a limiting mission as opposed to an opening up mission, right? That ours is let's try to understand the world, let's try to, you know, and then let's try to, you know, maybe push the world or change the world in a way that, 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 um, you know, sort of like takes advantage of that understanding to make the world a better place. And so that might, you know, and so, but that's, so we have a, we have a, we have a, a mission that, 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 um, you know, sort of encourages and, and promotes and pushes um, uh, innovation. So we don't have a limiting mission, um, but we also haven't been changing the mission to like catch up with 
Yeah, you know, the latest fat, the whatever latest fad or latest fashion. And so then yeah. we're not um, sort of subject to, oh, well, we didn't guess right what the next fad, fad was. Right? That we're, you know, we're, you know, that when I think about, it's true of me, I think it's, it's how I think about scholarship too. In many ways, I think about scholarship and, and academic entrepreneurship in the, in the same way, which is the, uh, you know, what are the gaps, right? Yeah. So I have, I have, a, I clearly have a perspective and I have a, um, you know, certain set of interests. Uh, Mercatus is an organization has a certain set of interests. It's a certain, um, we're a certain kind of organization with a certain kind of mission. Uh, and that the gaps, um, um, in many ways, bother me. Yeah. And so one of the th- and so you think about, you know, like the reason why we have something like a Smith Fellowship um, or a Bastiat Fellowship or a Morgenstern Fellowship or now a Lavoie Fellowship. We've talked a lot about Lavoie, is because there were gaps in the train in the in the you know the the social scientific training yeah. of the majority of of graduate students around the world yeah. that there was this rich set of ideas about how to make sense of the world that they weren't even encountering uh, and that that was a that was a um, and that was a, a set of ideas that we had a particular skill set in and, and, and comparative advantage in, and that, that gap then became sort of the, became intolerable in a lot of right. ways. And so like, how do we fill that, that gap? That that's the same way I sort of think about like, why am I talking about culture and economy or like, you know, markets and sociology, sociality or markets and realities? Cause that's an intolerable gap in the, in the literature that, that's, yeah. In many ways, it's huge, not small, not not a, yeah. not a small one. It's not a footnote type gap. It's a, it you know, it's a they're, they're big ones. And so I'm trying to, um, uh, I think I think that's not just me. I think there's a lot of people at Mercatus who think about um, that, yeah, um, the mission in that way, and and the way we advance the mission in that way. Yeah, I think. I think that you hit on to something there. Two things, I think. Uh, one of them is is that the not fad issue, and I think this is one of the things that people totally misunderstood about Don, was that hermeneutics was not a fad. All right, um, it's a philosophy of uh, reading, of learning, and discourse. And if if there's some continuity that is involved in all of our programs. It is reading and discussion. The centerpiece of everything that we do is reading and discussion. So it's not just learning to perform as truffle hounds at academic dog shows. The main intellectual activity that our graduate students are engaged in is reading groups or uh, reading of papers and, share and discussing of ideas, even more so than learning how to present an idea. So rather than the idea of learning how to give a slick presentation, which we try to do now because they have to do that, and I understand that. But for the first three years of graduate school, most of them are discussing ideas 
where there's no presentation even given. It's just, let's just jump into the ideas. Yeah. There's no lecture given. You presume you did that prior, so you can just jump into it and have that conversation. Um, the levels of reading groups and everything. That was all Don, right? Yeah. That started with Don, and it was about learning how to read um, and read charitably and thoroughly. And hermeneutics is a philosophy. I mean, it's ancient. It goes, you know, it's, it's not something that was, you know, just limited to, you know, postmodernist culture in the 1970s or something like that. And, and so it was really this issue and that being part of it. And the second one um, is that recognizing what cheapens a conversation. So you mentioned earlier about the idea of the no shortcuts. Why no shortcuts, right? Isn't there great gains from parsimony? Well, we can be too thin for our own good was part of Don's argument. And, and we need to not cheapen the conversation in the social sciences about, uh, you know, um, uh, and, and humanity, so, which is all ultimately about the human condition, which is why it is that he was drawn to Hannah Arendt, you know, and, and, and this idea of our, our frameworks as being like a set of eyeglasses from which we read and that history is the greatest book that we ever get to read and so that we should be embracing that um, and all of that. And I think that that, um, you know, there was something unique about a center that was started by Rich and Jack and Don that put the primary focus on the students in the program and the learning in the program above the comfort level of the faculty in the program. So this goes back to your generosity of time idea. You know, most centers, quote unquote centers, uh, they end up by becoming very valuable to professors because they are the reason or the resources why the professor gets time to not have to teach, not have to meet with other people, can sit you know, basically live their life like we've all been living for the last eight months if we wanted to, which is away from everyone with our books around us and our computers and that's it. And, you know, that wasn't what we're supposed to do because we're supposed to meet and discuss ideas in this way. And so it's fascinating. I wanted to, you know, look, you're, you're, you're a very accomplished scholar uh, the number of books that you've done and, and the number of journal articles that you've written across the board, what you mentioned before is that, you know, in philosophy, in sociology, in science, uh, the work that you've done uh, with Ginny on that, um, and of course in economics. So, you know, you've accomplished a lot as a scholar. You have tremendous mentoring abilities with these young people that you've mentored over the last decade um, who have now developed their own careers and you can look at their their library emerging of their own books and their own careers and everything like that. But you've also been an amazing um, educational innovator. Um, and I guess you already kind of hinted at what it is, which is that the gaps scratch at your mind and you figure out ways to, to fix that. But, um, you know, talk a little bit about those programs. Yeah. 
and what gaps i mean i know you hate to talk about it but but what gaps are they are they filling in in, the, in a different way and what excites you most about what possibilities we could do and in, in, in even in this difficult space like today you know like what we face today we face all kinds of challenges for a lot of our educational programs but we're we're there's a scratch that needs to be you know an itch that needs to be scratched and we're figuring out a way to try to satisfy that and just maybe just a little yeah not so like I'll, elaborate bragging about it but just yeah I'll so maybe I'll maybe I'll do or or given the purposes so maybe I'll do a history and and so like that'll be and and because I think that that speaks to this kind of this kind of question and so. I was hired by Mercatus in 2007 as the director of graduate student programs. Uh, and I was tasked with um, two things, really. One was we had an existing PhD fellowship um, and it supported um, 12 to 15 students a year and it had been supporting that number for you know, back from when I was a graduate student and, and right. before. Um, and there was a, 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 a sort of a decision that maybe we should attempt to grow that. And so I was, I was, and so one of the things was, you know, figure out how to grow that from, you know, 15 to 25 um, students. And then the second thing was, we think, um, and this is sort of when I was talking about like early on that, 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 the Santa hadn't yet figured out what its relationship with graduates, at least the policy part of the Santa hadn't yet figured out what its relationship with graduate students should be. The second thing was, let's, you know, we think we have, you know, let's, we think that maybe um, we can start a, a master's fellowship that's for students who are interested in applied economics. Right. right. And so that was, and so, you know, start that, figure out what that ought to be and grow that. And so the first, um, and so the first thing was really developing that master's um, fellowship as a uh, sort of training opportunity for students who, for whom, say, a PhD would have been an overinvestment. They weren't right. interested in going into academia. And so the kinds of, te um, um, you know, the educational experiences that they would get in a PhD fellowship, in a PhD program, weren't exactly right. So what they really um, would benefit from was um, by then Mercatus had become, um, you know, a, a, a you know, a, you know, a, a policy, you know, it had a policy research center that had people who were committed to doing, you know, sort of serious and, um, you know, policy scholarship, not, you know, and that, uh, and so, you know, so the first thing was developing that as a, a fellowship where they got a, in-classroom set of experiences that would train them to be, you know, you know, policy analysts, essentially economic policy analysts, um, and a, a set of out-of-classroom experiences that were a kind of apprenticeship in policy scholarship, right. in policy analysis. And so that was that, the Mercatus Fellowship. That, and we, you know, and so they, they went on for a bit. And the, one of the things that, that you know, it's just how I thought, you know, talked about the gap was that you, we would constantly, and this would happen at at, um, at conferences you'd go to, whatever, you'd encounter graduate students, 
sometimes graduate students are really, you know, sort of high ranked or, you know, you know, institutions that have really great reputations that just sort of didn't, just weren't aware that, you know, there were these Nobel laureates who did this interesting work in, in, you know, this aspect of political economy and that their work might benefit from engaging that. Right. And so, you know, then, you know, this notion wasn't that they needed to become, um, you know, Austrian economists or public choice economists or sort of Ocean style institutional economists, but that there was this work out there that, in fact, their own questions and their own problems would benefit from their awareness of. And so you sort of like that's, And so it was like, OK, well, can we figure out a way? that we could expose students from a variety of institutions, not, um, not at Mason, um, to these approaches to political economy that we sort of have this unique um, skill set in orientation. And so that's where the Smith um, yeah. Fellowship came from. And, and as you were saying before, like the values that, that Don had, it's, all, it's entirely discussion-based. Yeah. program because again the purpose isn't a um we're going to um it's 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 conversion experience where we're meant to put people in the you know we take students in and they come out austrian economists or something like that yeah. it's a uh, no we think that there's something valuable here that might be useful for your own set of questions and your own set of um ideas and for your own advancement of your scholarly program that if you were aware of, you might do a better job of. And the only way for you to figure that out or not is to actually have her be introduced to those ideas, but then have a discussion yeah. about that and like how that, what the flaws are, what the holes are, what your questions that you might have to that. And so that's where the Smith Fellowship came from. Um, and over time, two things, again, you, you talk about the gaps, the two things presented themselves as being pretty obvious. That if you were, um, that this was going to be, this was interesting to more than just economists. That in fact, um, many graduate students outside of economics and philosophy and political science and sociology and musicology and what have you would find real benefit from engaging these ideas. Um, and and having these kinds of conversations, and that in fact the interdisciplinary conversation around them would be richer than if it were just economists. And so that program sort of evolved to be much more interdisciplinary, certainly in terms of its students. Yeah. Uh, and and so that meant, but but that again that revealed two things. One, if you were an economist, it almost didn't tick the right boxes for you. The you know, give you a sort of an, a classically trained economist, a, a standard program. It it didn't it it forced it, it sort of put you in a situation where you were um, discussing the um, the limits of the techniques and approaches to economics that you were being trained in like those things that I was telling you way back at the beginning of this conversation yeah. that I was like acutely aware of um, being real challenges and didn't give you enough space to adjudicate between how to deal with, how to reconcile those limits with what you in fact then were doing in your program. And so the Morgan Stern Fellowship 
explode out of that. It was like, okay, what kind of conversation can we cultivate that would allow students that were um, economic students and, and maybe quantitatively trained political science students to engage in the uh, ideas, but in a way that was productive for them, not um, sort of problematic for them. Uh, the other, the other sort of, you know, ideal typical student that wasn't being well served by the Smith Fellowship was if you really had a policy bent. If because it wasn't, a, it's not a space where we talk about, you know, policy in any sort of way, right? Like it's sort of we don't talk about policy analysis in that. If it comes up in the conversation, it's third or fourth order kind of, you know, intervention. It's not really what the the conversation there was about. And so can we create a space for students who are interested in the way Mercatus does policy analysis and policy research? Um, and, you know, the sort of built on the same. And so that's where the Bastia Fellowship came from. And all three of those fellowships now have, um, you know, that I've been pleasantly surprised and, and um, you know, sort of awed by just sort of the, the quality of students that, that are engaged in those in those programs, not just quality in terms of the institutions that they come from, but the sort of the the, the scholarly commitments of the students engaged in that program, uh, and the the depth of engagement that they have um, with those ideas and what have you. And so we've been trying to with each of those programs individually, we've been trying to see if we could create opportunities for them to have even deeper engagement with these ideas because they themselves have said, hey, we find them right. valuable. And so then we come to the space, right? So but those are, you know, conversation is fundamental to them. The, 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 the conversations that happen, not just, you know, sort of in the formal, in, you know, sessions, but outside at lunch and dinner are critical to them. And then we get to 2020 and we can't do that, right? That we're, we're in a situation where, um, in-person interaction isn't something that, that, that we can do safely, um, uh, you know, in that kind of form. And so the question is, okay, so what are, you know, what, like what, you know, what do we do about that? Do we, you know, and the first thing, one thing we did was we, we opted not to try to just replicate what we do there right. over Zoom. The Zoom is a tremendous, or over, you know, some, sort of online video conferencing tool that, you know, these are tremendous, right? That we, I don't know how we would have survived um, much of 2020 if we didn't have them, but they have real limits. Yeah. And one of the, one of the real limits that they have is that um, they're not the kind of spaces that make a building of relationships, right? Like you can sustain and maybe even deepen relationships that already exist um, doing this, using this kind of format, but it's really a difficult um, space to have, you know, substantive conversations with strangers about new things that are um, sort of fundamental and foundational to the way we approach our disciplines and our subjects and, and the way we go about scholarship or what have you. Uh, and so we knew that wasn't going to work. Like we can't just sort of put, you know, put the Smith Fellowship or whatever fully online. Um, but what it did do is it actually created an opportunity 
that we that we wanted to 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 think about but didn't which is can we combine can we can we offer our introduction into the ways you know the kinds of scholarship that we do um and the kinds of scholarship that we value that actually takes advantages of, takes advantage of these um the um technology that we now have available to us and would that not allow us to expand the range of people who might be able to be involved yeah right and so we created the lavoy fellowship which is you know and it, it made sense to name it after lavoy both because like all of our programs it was going to have this commitment to um discussion and dialogue but it also was taking place on this you know, technological space, which is a thing that you mentioned in being a computer scientist a couple of times. It was something that he was, he was, he valued and he was ahead of, he was ahead of online discussions and stuff like that. He was innovated in that space. And so, um, and so it's been actually exciting this past semester and we're continuing it, um, this semester and, and given the, 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 responses that we've gotten from students will continue it sort of going forward, which is it does seem to be serving it. It's exciting how much it seems to be serving its its function. Yeah. That the that you that although we're not um we're attempting, you know, to have a much more you know conversation about works that are much more applied and that are um sort of less foundational, that we're not um we're sort of avoiding conversations about philosophy of science and we're yeah. avoiding and methodology and 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 the like, but we're also um, avoiding again sort of foundational um, sort of concept, you know, the, the foundational contributions of 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 say Austrian economics or or the Virginia School or Bloomington School. Um, we're still managing in that online space to have really, um, you know, robust discussion. Yeah. Um, and that the students still seem to be valuing it more. And it's actually inspired in them a thirst from, to engage in more of our programs. So yeah. that's been exciting to watch and to see and to, um, um, and I've been sort of thrilled with, with that. So I, given I, I, that we're going to have to be there for the yeah. next semester. Yeah. I've been involved in all of these conversations, and I, I would say that I think one of the um, one of the things that might surprise people from the outside looking in is how little gets discussed in any of them about um, the uh, the concrete issues of policy space as opposed to uh, policy relevant ideas maybe is a different kind of idea but the other thing i wanted to say in response to what you're saying it, it because I, I i don't know if this was, was the intent in the way that the programs evolved but in my own experience one of the things that i think the program has done so fascinating for our efforts is that it identified holes that we see in our own thinking that can be repaired by combinatorial thinking in a way that we might not have thought about prior. So just as a scholar 
let alone as a teacher, but as just as a scholar, the conversations that we have, I think, you know, and, and maybe I'm the, not the right person to judge it, but if you ask me, I would say that I've become a better scholar because of the conversations that I've had. One of them is a consequence of the fact that in interdisciplinary discussion, all of the reasons why economists are arrogant get flattened. Okay, so, and, and I might say that that's also true for philosophers. So you have two, you know, rather strong-willed groups in interdisciplinary discourse in the social science and the humanities. Economists who think that they have, you know, rigor on their side, and analytic philosophers who, again, think that they have rigor on their side compared to everyone else. And if what you do is you engage in a, in a conversation which sort of flattens that, that arrogance because you're talking about uh, things that don't necessarily put that as a shut-up argument to others, you know, all of a sudden now you're having to, like, interact with people from where they are and, and learn and listen and everything. And, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing, and I'm sure I must have mentioned this to you, but when we first started the Smith Fellowship Program, um, I, you know, we get these little, like, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, these things, right? We get a pen, pen, and I'm sitting there, and it's a group of 15, and, you know, I'm normally a chatty kind of person or whatever, and I used to put on the top of my, uh, my, my sheet in bold letters, listen. So, right? And another one is, Pete, less is more, <laughs> right? And, and yeah, I mean, it's just been an amazing experience, uh, I think, for stimulating how it is that I see where the bigger picture of the social sciences and the humanities fit together and, and learning from the different takes that different people have. Yeah. So yeah. Like one of the, one of the things that's, 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 I think critical to that, just sort of echoing what you said, that we're not, you know, so there's a number of scholars at the Mercator Center that are involved in these fellowships, but we're never teachers in that space. We're students in that space. Right. Right. And so that, that we're never, there's no lectures, there's no, there's no whiteboards, there's no, there's discussion happening in that, in that space. And so because of that, that there's, you know, we're open to learning as much as we are to, to actually, you know, conveying something that's, as, yeah. that's important to them. And that, that kind of vulnerability that, that happens in that space is, I think, what, one, one of the reasons why it works. The, 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 the nicest thing that has ever been said of our programs, and I think it's why students, even students who've had that experience for, a year want to come back and spend do more time with us and want to participate in more of our programs or whatever and i think it's a value that we can't um ever lose is that and now a, num a number of them said it it's that it's what this space is what i expected graduate school to be like right that i this is what like from a as a as a as an undergrad dreaming about going to get a phd somewhere uh, that what I thought was that I would be in these learning environments where, you know, there wasn't 
you know, that ideas were all, you know, I was open to express ideas. I was open to, to question texts that were not, you know, that we, you know, they, they have assigned meetings and what have you, but we don't ever treat the text like it's a, uh, you know, it's, it's sacred and, and some that, that must be, you know, it's like you can criticize it and that you've, you've actually got people from our, you know, scholars from Makedas who are in that room who are critical of the text that we're reading um, as well. And that the, the students, um, who participated in it, again, multiple of them have said, this is what I thought graduate school would be like. And I don't think we can ever, I think that's exciting about the program, but I also think yeah. that's a value that we have to hold on to. One other thing I wanted to say to you, which goes back to your comment about Don and his uh, reading of your papers. Um, so, because I think the fact that we enter into this space, not as uh, imposed authorities but as mutual learners who will be recognized as someone who's thought about these things a lot because of the way that you engage or whatever but never like that you're a monopoly expert or whatever in the room that's what enables you to build trust to have these open conversations just like when don gave you back your paper and it was full of red which is what he did. Um, he had already earned your trust that he was doing that in good faith, not as a, uh, you know, uh, not as an imposed authority from on high or something like that. It was an authority that you granted to him. I mean, this is a Gadamerian point, the difference between authority and authoritarianism. Um, and that a lot of education which is what Don was against in arguing for the dem democ democratization of knowledge, right? Which is, again, he was a very early first mover in all of those things. I mean, I think he wrote his, his uh, first papers on that in the late 80s, early 90s, right? So, and he was, he was doing working with hypertext before it was cool, and he was interacting with those people in Silicon Valley that are working on those kind of ideas and stuff and how to develop those educational tools. And in many ways, when we have our discussion group in the Lavoie online, those are just the children of those earlier software things that, that he, he was working with, which is pretty amazing to think about. But what's, you know, think about Don, I never got a paper back from him that wasn't full, massively full of red pen, right? Um, but I started getting that from him and meeting with him in the same way you were talking about uh, very early on. And what he did was he reflected that he cared so much about what you were doing that he wanted to help you do it as well as you could do it. And I think that that attitude is a lot different from other professors that I've seen that try to criticize people or editors for that. <laughs> that try to criticize you because you're not making the argument that they would make, right? And and they want to make they want to use you as a mouthpiece for what they want to say rather than helping you become better than than what you you know you are, and and uh, you at what you want to do. And I think Don and that culture has stayed with this conversation, and it explains I think um, even you know the the. It explains both the smoothness of some of the programs and the rough edges on other ones is because of if that attitude gets lost, then the program starts to not work like what it's supposed yeah. to work. And then there becomes 
all these other, you know, things that come up. I mean, you know, it's, it's anyway, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of the real great joys of my life that we have done these programs because I view it as such a great opportunity to continually learn afresh new things that I thought I already knew, but then I learned that I don't know. And so I have to learn some more. Um, all right. Just uh, one last question, which is really just to ask you, move away from that educational space now. Okay. Let's go back to, to Virgil Storr, the scholar who's got books and everything going on. Um, You've been a, uh, a, a, a major, I, I just gave a lecture yesterday. I just got done about discussing. Now I'm going to talk about lecture. But I just gave a lecture yesterday, and the title of the lecture was uh, Relations, Symbolism, Transactions. Okay? And, you know, it's, it's sort of, you know, someone like Glenn Lowry nowadays likes to run around and say relations before transactions. Relations before transactions. And... You know, and then on the other hand, we could talk about the symbolic meanings of various different issues that are involved or whatever. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to talk about that you have relations and transactions. You have, you know, uh, you know choices uh, and, and symbolism. Symbolism can be in terms of, you know, what symbolic meanings you put on, on these kind of ideas that can, can relate to approbation and disapprobation and, you know, how it all that, and that we as economists or social scientists that are asking economic questions, if you think about it that way, um, you know, we have to take into account all of this, uh, you know, core structure of incentives, but at the same time, understanding how it is that different incentives impinge on different people in different spaces because of the meanings that they attribute to it and, and whatnot. And so the social spaces, <laughs> it's a long-winded way of me to get to you, which is the social spaces within which all of us interact, that's been a theme of yours for a long, long time. And our ability to access that social space requires us to adopt empirical methods which are a lot uh you know not 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 so flattened right they, they require us to sort of do this so as a scholar where do you see your next sort of a, a you know movements going what projects excite you about when you have time in between yeah. all these other amazing <laughs> things that you're doing uh you know besides being a dedicated husband and a wonderful father you know <laughs> and a great educational entrepreneur you know when you find that space what um you know what excites you the most about the projects on your docket yeah and so i think there's a there's a couple that are that are um that are exciting and, and this will this will sort of maybe speak to um the sort of very nature of my of my interest, although I do think there's a there's a kind of core. So I'm currently working on a book with no one my wife, um, on riots and order. Uh and it it's it's sort of motivated um or it's it's I shouldn't say it's motivated by it, but it's it's timely now because we've 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 been witness to a bunch of of this social unrest. Yeah. Right. That that we've got, um, you know, that that you know, in the U.S. in the middle of 2020, even in the midst of a pandemic, 
we've you know we've seen tremendous protest and and social upheaval and 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 some of that is some of those events have turned into riots um but we've seen this sort of like happen around the world too it's not just in the u.s yeah um, and the and so one of the things that that Nolan and i are trying to understand in the book or trying to make sense of the book is you know sort of what you know can we understand um like how do we understand these events that are themselves disruptors of of social order and and what role do um you know what role do they play as sort of disruptors of disruptors of social order in in transforming and bringing about new social orders but then also how do we understand um these events that appear to be chaotic but are themselves orders that they're they're themselves um yeah. you know you know that the actors within them follow rules the you know the actors within them are you know have certain constraints. The actors in them face certain feedback mechanisms that reward certain kinds of activities and 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 punish or dissuade them from other kinds of activities. And so you've got this this sort of interesting interplay of um, the, these events that disrupt social order and you know change and alter and bring about new social orders as a result of them. But those events, though they appear chaotic, are also orders themselves. And so we're trying to like understand, you know, we're trying to to lay that out um, uh, conceptually and theoretically, but then also to um, sort of apply it uh, to, you know, a case that 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 her dissertation was on, and she wrote up a dissertation on the 1942 riot in the Bahamas. Um, which you know had this it was this right there was this transformative experience in the history of of um the country where both of us are, are, are from um and so it's using that frame to make sense of that but then also to see its relevance to you know to some of these um existing riots that it and so that's that's sort of like the project that's that's the sort of big project that's taking up um a lot of mental energy and a lot of focus and and it, it's sort of in some ways, the hardest one to talk about because it's the one that I'm right in the middle of now. Yeah. It's a lot of easier to talk about the project, the things that you've not done yet, or the things that you've you've done already. But the things that you're all in, you know, suddenly they they sort of feel a mess. But then I continue to do work, and this is where graduate students are, are awesome in in the sense that they've so you know I've continued to do work on on you know how communities recover after disasters. Yeah. So continue to do I continue to do work on on how communities recover. Um, after disasters had had Katrina not happened, had sort of COVID not happened, and and we'd not been so I find we'd have been doing field work this summer uh, in Puerto Rico to look yeah. at how that community right. was recovering after um, Hurricane Maria, right. um, and that had planned and have a planned project to do field work in the Bahamas to look at how the Bahamas is recovering after Hurricane Dorian. Uh, and and continue to do work on, um, you know, the, the the social and moral aspects of markets that that you know some take on, um, you know, uh, sort of use you know economic experiments to try to reveal some underlying mechanisms that are at work there. But 
also plan field work with business owners to talk about, um, you know, one, a COVID related project about, um, you know, what we've lost. And, yeah. You know, if, if the market is really a social space, um, but we've now been, yeah. we've now had to retreat for market activity as a result of, of COVID, what's, you know, what's, what's yeah. the cost, what's the social cost there of that? Um, and, you know, a bunch of other, and so that's like sort of the, the, there's a, there's a number of projects that are, that are sort of all in either the community recovery space or the social and moral aspects of market space that I'm, uh, you know, interested in and continue to work on and, and, and expect to keep me busy for a very long time. Well, that's, well, that's fantastic. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I, I teach, uh, you know, your papers in my one graduate class and your book um, in there as well. And, and it's just fantastic stuff. And so um, we just got to keep, keep plugging on and keep moving forward. So yeah. onward and upward, as they say. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's, uh, thank you very much, Virgil. I think that thank you covered a lot of bases there. And we have a, uh, we have a lot of work yet to be done. Um, but we're, I think, we're consistently adapting and evolving, but at the same time, honoring our teacher. And I think that's a great thing that we're doing. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.